Dr. Ian Proven. Uh, let's begin with scripture, Psalm 23, and then John chapter 10, some verses from there. So, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he restores my soul, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. John 10, verse 7. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep, so when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep." This is the word of the Lord. Oh, I do. I'm good. Okay. I want to take you back to 1976. In 1976, I was a student, shortly after the age of dinosaurs, you remember. That's, uh, uh, in 1976, the summer of that year, I was involved for a month in a mission in southern France with a uh, a group called Operation Mobilization. Do you guys know who they are? Uh, we were in the city of Bordeaux. We gathered for orientation in Louvain in Belgium. Then we were assigned to small groups in which we would travel to our different destinations. We were provided with a leader, a mode of transport, and a small amount of money. I remember our transport uh, vividly. A, a battered old Volkswagen van, much like this one, a van that has seen better days. Those better days were, sadly, long gone, as indeed were the seats. Uh, where those seats in the van had once been, there now existed only a cavernous space into which uh, most of us were joyfully deposited by the joyful people who were sending us off. Uh, the floor was quite hard, I remember, it was not of itself joy-producing. <laughs> but what the van lacked in seating was more than compensated for in terms of what it added to the excitement of travel. This was not entirely due to the van itself. Our team leader was a cheerful, upbeat girl from New York who had never driven in Europe before had only the most rudimentary knowledge of European driving conditions and European traffic laws. It was an interesting, long, and painful journey from Levin to Bordeaux. The most interesting moment was when our fearless leader attempted a U-turn somewhere out on the outskirts of Paris on the Ring Road. We were alerted to this creative moment by being rudely awakened from sleep and hurled from the back of the van to the front of the van as she braked hard, having realized her mistake. Nothing daunted, we continued on our way. This included a, a pleasant six-fold circuit of the Arc de Triomphe. <laughs> While we tried to figure out how to exit safely on the correct road. The French used to have this amazing thing. I don't know if you ever drove, drove in Paris back in the old days. 
you were supposed to give way to all the traffic coming on to the Arc of Triomphe. I mean, it was the stupid, the craziest thing. So it was all stop, star, and you had to have eight people like watching where the traffic was. It was just hilarious. Uh, my other abiding memory of this trip was uh, somewhere in southern France. Uh, overnight, we just stopped, drew up in a field, and the girls got to sleep safely in the van. The boys got to sleep on top of uh, the local hay- haystack, uh, which we shared with the charming local French rats. Uh, <laughs> Lay rats, as we referred to them. Uh, in the morning, New York girl managed to reverse the van directly over my main travel bag, spewing out its contents onto France's native soil. So I arrived in Bordeaux uh, happy to be alive, for sure, uh, less adequately clothed than, than I thought I would be, though. And I tell you this story to emphasize something important about our Christian journey, that it's very important to travel with someone who is competent to get you to your destination. (laughs) Somebody who resists the temptation to make U-turns on highways while you're asleep, who knows how to escape from large chaotic roundabouts, and who will not under any circumstances reverse over your baggage. Because, of course, we all have baggage, right? (laughs) Successful travel requires the right leader. It also involves a destination worth the trouble. And I make no comment here on Bordeaux as a city. I'm sure some people like it. (laughs) I'm I'm sure there are are parts of it I didn't see. Um, But generally speaking... uh, you know, when you're traveling, you hope the destination's going to be, you know, good. And this brings me circuitously to Psalm 23, as it happens, which is the particular text I want to focus on uh, today. Uh, here we have a biblical text about a journey, our journey, our journey with God, our journey toward maturity in Christ. Um, We've been reflecting this week on preaching Old Testament Scripture, and I've been organizing my thoughts on that, not just around different genres of literature, but around the theme of God's love. God loves us in the beginning. God loves all of us. God reveals love to us by giving us Torah. God shows His love by sending us prophets and giving us wisdom in the midst of the ordinary. And all of that, I think, is important and good. But the one question we haven't actually explicitly addressed is, how long does God's love last? God loves us in the beginning and in the middle, but does God love us right to the end? Or does God become weary on the journey? Does he quit halfway through? How serious is God in his love for us? And Psalm 23 helps us a lot with those questions, I think. It's a text about the character of the God who leads us through life. It's a text about the nature of the destination that we're heading for. It's a text about the certainty of getting there. So we'll get to Psalm 23 specifically just in a moment. But I want to just say a few words, first of all, about the Psalms in general. Uh, Preaching the Psalms in general. I'm sure that many of you in seminary will have been taught about the importance of reading the Psalms and the importance particularly of reading each Psalm very carefully as an individual composition. Um, That would be a pretty standard thing to be taught in seminary. It's a very good thing to be taught. Um, Certainly paying attention to the individual Psalms um, has led to much greater understanding of them through time. We've learned to think of the Psalms not so much as spontaneous individualistic compositions, uh, but as liturgical entities carefully crafted for worship in ancient Israel, following fairly set traditional liturgical forms, using fairly conventional language, which uh, repeats itself uh, quite a lot. Uh, So the benefit that we've derived from treating individual Psalms along with other psalms of a similar kind, so genres of psalms. That's been very informative, and it's led to categorizations that I think are very useful. 
wisdom psalms, so psalms that talk about wisdom, or Torah, like Numbers 1 and 19, or 119. Uh, royal psalms, which either speak about the king or appear to have been designed originally to be used in the context of things like royal coronations or whatever, psalms like Psalm 2 and 72, psalms of thanksgiving or praise, quite a lot of those, of course, uh, in the Psalter, and just a few of them noted there. Uh, psalms of lament, quite a lot of those in the Psalter as well giving public space to um, distress, complaint, and, and all those things. So the Psalms um, composed uh, in terms of the individual instance of the general theme of lament or praise, we know a lot about that and uh, uh, understand more than, than used to be understood about what was likely going on in Israelite worship as these Psalms were used. And of course, the Psalms have been used liturgically in the Christian faith all the way through, and to this day, they are used and form the basis for modern worship songs as well. And all of this is great, and it raises important questions all of their own. Uh, for example, if we are a biblical people, why is it that we have so few modern worship songs that are laments? There's a really good question that arises from this kind of exercise. And um, it's a bit better now than it was when I started whining about it, you know, a number of decades ago. Uh, but to this day still, I'm sure if you look at the, uh, if you still have books in your churches or you look at your, your pool of overheads and you just do accounts, as it were, of how many, how well the lament genre is represented, it does raise... I think quite disturbing questions about our view of spirituality over against biblical views of spirituality. So these are good questions to ask, for sure. But I want to make my obvious and predictable point now, which I've said about everything else. The Psalms do not come down to us as individual compositions. They come down to us in a book. Um, so they come in, in written form. They're, they're not sort of, it's not like a hymn book where you have a number of texts just all loosely in there with, with tunes and so on, and obviously it's designed for singing or worship. In fact, uh, we have a, a piece of literature here, and the Psalms are not randomly scattered. So I was emphasizing this point with Isaiah, for example. We're not talking even about simply loose organization. One of the things that Psalm scholarship has really established, I think, in the last several decades is that the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is quite intentionally arranged. The Psalms have been ordered for us, and they have been ordered for a reason. The reason is introduced, actually, in Psalm 1, which we won't actually read. It's a very well-known Psalm. It introduces to us the person who is blessed. So we've come across that idea, of course, in other uh, sessions this week. The path which this person follows is defined both negatively and positively. The positive is that the righteous, blessed person delights in God's Torah and meditates on it day and night, and consequently, it's like a tree planted by streams of water. That is to say, it's a well-rooted life. It's a well-nourished life, and he produces or she produces fruit. That's the basic metaphor in Psalm 1. Uh, this is not true of the wicked, who, who in the Psalms are not simply those people who from time to time sin. The wicked are those who are set on walking on this other path that we noted in the book of Proverbs. Uh, so what are the wicked like? Well, the metaphor used for them is of chaff in, in ancient agriculture, still in modern agriculture where people don't really have the machines to do it. How do you separate your good stuff from your bad stuff, as it were, the stuff you don't want after the harvest? You find a breezy day, you throw it in the air, and the stuff you don't want, the chaff, blows away. And you don't need much of a wind. Just a breeze will do. So... This very substantial metaphor for the righteous, well-rooted beside a stream. The wicked are not so, says the psalmist. The wicked are like chaff. They blow away on the slightest breeze. They're not substantial. 
it's a, a very powerful psalm. It's a very powerful wisdom psalm because it's exploring the two ways that we were thinking about yesterday morning. The significant thing about it at the moment, though, I want you to notice is that it's not actually a prayer. It's a blessing. Uh, it's a blessing on those who go on the right way in contrast to those who do not. In other words, the reader of the Psalter is greeted at the beginning of the book, not so much as a worshiper who has come to sing and to pray, but as a reader of God's law who has come to learn how to live. That's how we're introduced to these texts. And in this psalm, he comes as an individual rather than as a member of a worshiping group. It's private individual meditation that's stressed in this psalm, in fact. Um, psalm 1 proposes, really, that the songs that follow, the prayers and all the things that follow, are for a particular sort of person, in other words. These are songs and prayers for a disciplined community of piety set on, on walking in God's way, people who believe that Torah, God's Torah, does stand at the center of life. And so, just using a, a modern analogy to try and get the point here, I think of Psalm 1 as being a little bit like the maps that you get at the entrance to malls. Um, what do they do for you? Well, they give you the necessary information on finding your way around, right? They introduce you, they orientate you to what you're going to find and where you're going to find it and the kinds of things that, 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 will, that will do for you, as, as it were. Uh, Psalm 2 that comes just afterwards is also interesting in this respect. It's a royal psalm expressing tremendous hope in the Davidic king, the son of David, the intriguing thing about this psalm, of course, is that when the book of Psalms was being put together in the exilic or post-exilic period, which we know it was because it has psalms looking back on the, exile, on the exile, by the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept and so on. Of course, in that period of Israelite history, there were no kings. So why would you put a royal psalm uh, in, why would you put any of the royal psalms actually in this book of Psalms? And why would you put Psalm 2 right up against Psalm 1? And I think the best answer to that question is that they were put in there because already these texts were expressing hope for the future coming king. So these are messianic compositions. Whether you think they were composed messianically, strictly speaking, right at the beginning, at the point when the book of Psalms is being put together, for sure they are being put there because they express that hope. And very shortly afterwards, in fact, you see that very explicitly expressed in the way that the Septuagint and the Qumran manuscripts handle these texts. They are being read messianically. And uh, in modern psalm scholarship, it's very common now, commonly agreed that Psalms 1 and 2 together introduce us to the whole thing. Psalm 1 does this individually. Psalm 2 does it communally, the nations, as it were, and we are being drawn in here to see that the Psalms really are a guidebook for the pilgrim on the way, right? The one who is walking on this way. That's who these texts um, are actually for. So it's a guidebook for pilgrims and groups of pilgrims on the right way. And that really is the larger context in which all the other texts, like laments and so on, are to be read. So we, we begin with these notions of blessing and the kingdom of God, essentially. Um, these are said to be realities right now. At the end of the book, of course, you have all of those psalms about going up to Zion and the glorious consummation right at the end. And in the middle part, you have... All sorts of highs and lows, basically. You've got life in the middle of that. And you have texts that, that celebrate. You have texts that lament. These are, these are the very things that we need for the journey. Right? 
That's how I think the book of Psalms works. And if we're thinking about preaching the individual Psalms, I think that's the, the larger picture, the big picture of the book of Psalms that we have to have in, in mind. And that's the context, therefore, um, that I want to set Psalm 23 within. Um, Psalm 23 is a psalm of confidence. That's how it's often characterized. It concerns the God who is good and who looks after his people even in the midst of horrendous circumstances. Now remember what comes directly before Psalm 23. And we've talked about the necessity, have we? I've been trying to impress this. The necessity of close contacts as well as big contacts. Psalm 22 the darkest, possibly with the single exception of Psalm 88, the darkest lament psalm in the book. Extravagantly bad at the beginning, extravagantly wonderful at the end. It's the highs and the lows right there in microcosm. Psalm 22, as you well know, is the psalm of Good Friday in the Christian tradition. God has apparently forsaken the worshiper completely as the psalm begins. And this has a lot to do with why Jesus chooses this psalm on the cross, of course. Exactly so. But now, coincidentally, Psalm 23, following on. And Psalm 23 reminds us, therefore, about who God is in the midst of this forsakenness and abandonment and darkness and all the rest of it. It reminds us who God is, it reminds us of where we're going, and it reminds us of the certainty that we will get to that destination. Psalm 23 speaks to us about these things using a couple of leading metaphors. The first is the one that's uh, most thought of, I suppose. Uh, it is that God is a good shepherd. That's the first leading metaphor of the psalm. Uh, there's another metaphor which is equally important, less emphasized very often, and that's the second part of the psalm where God is a generous host. We'll talk about both of those. So, the first four lines, God is a good shepherd. The metaphor of the shepherd, very commonly deployed in the Bible, as I'm sure you know, closely associated in the Old Testament with God's leading of Israel in the wilderness and with Israel's return from exile in Babylon. So you see it popping up, for example, in places like Isaiah 49. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture in every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat nor the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. This is a very intimate metaphor. God in the Psalms is also a rock, is a shield. These are wonderful metaphors as well. But they're what I would call hard-edged images, if I can put it that way. A much more intimate relational metaphor, this metaphor of the shepherd. God who lives with the flock and is everything to the flock in, in this Psalm. What does that mean? Well, a good shepherd makes sure that the sheep eat the best food. That's something a good shepherd would do. And in this psalm, that is exactly what is said of God. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That is to say, in grassy meadows, as opposed to sparsely vegetated land. Now, if you've been to the Holy Land, you will know there's a lot of the latter. Uh, I mean, that's one of the most marked things about a lot of Israel, is it looks like that, right? Particularly down in the south. It's desert-like. But the Good Shepherd, even in this rather unpromising environment, manages to find green pasture. That takes effort to find that kind of abundance, that kind of lushness. Um, it's not easy, but it can be done and the Good Shepherd tries hard and succeeds in doing it. Why does this Good Shepherd, and you still see pictures like this actually nowadays, uh, less so of course as we go along and become more modern, but uh, these images are still part of modern life in many parts of the Middle East. 
Why does the good shepherd try so hard to do this very difficult thing? Because he doesn't just want his sheep to eat as they travel through this land. He wants them to eat well. That's how much he cares about the sheep. That's the significance, I think, of the green pastures. The average shepherd might not care. The hireling shepherd in John 10 would not care. That's the point that Jesus makes there, actually. He's only in the sheep business for the money, as it were. It's not the sheep who are important, it's the cash. Uh, We've all met people like that. Maybe we've even employed people like that. Minimal effort, maximum sense of entitlement. So the hireling shepherd might well not care about the sheep as such. A shepherd just going through the motions might take a similar view. Well, they're only sheep. I'm sure they'll manage. Why make all the fuss? But the good shepherd cares. He has our best interests at heart. And for that reason, the same shepherd wants his sheep to drink well. He leads me beside quiet waters. Food was difficult to get in ancient Palestine. Water, even more so. Settled existence in the promised land required from the beginning quite a lot of ingenuity, actually. And so the courses of rivers were altered, the flow of springs improved, wells were dug, and cisterns, deep pits, were dug so that in the wet months you could retain the water that that fell. So it wasn't easy to find water in ancient Palestine. It was even less easy to find water that was safe for sheep to drink. Because if you're a sheep, imagine for a moment, uh, you're a sheep and you're looking to drink, you don't want to be sticking your head in a torrential river and finding yourself 800 meters downstream with your legs in the air and somewhat dead. You don't want turbulent water if you're a sheep. You don't want a raging flood. You want quiet water. A lot of the water supply in ancient uh, Palestine, when the rain fell, was turbulent. It is to this day. Flash floods, suddenly filling all the wadis with raging streams, likely to sweep away anything caught in their path. To this day in modern Israel, if you drive down through the Judean desert on the eastern side of the country, you will see there depressions in the road. Have you ever driven down there? It goes like this all the time. Why is that? Because they've actually made pathways for the water to run across the road and flash floods and and get out the other side. This is a photograph of a flash flood on exactly that road, in fact. So you see the problem. Sheep need quiet water, and quiet water is tough to find. But the good shepherd makes sure that this is what happens. It's not just any kind of sustenance. It's the best kind of sustenance. And so the picture we're getting here is that the good shepherd is not a meager provider. He's not an Ebenezer Scrooge kind of a guy. There's nothing grudging or petty in God's relationship with us. The good shepherd loves the sheep, pours out blessing on them. That's what Psalm 23 begins by uh, telling us. And by providing for the sheep in these ways, says the psalmist, he restores my soul. Just before we get there, here's a nice photograph of quiet water in uh, Palestine. He restores my soul. A better translation would be, he restores my life. Because, of course, in biblical thinking, the soul is not a a bit of you that floats around somewhere, as it were. Um, The soul is essentially the life force. It's, It's the whole human person looked at from that point of view. It's the very breath of God that animates the body. And so what we have in this reference to the restoration of the soul is really a reference to the shepherd keeping the sheep alive through good care. He restores the soul. He puts life back into us when it is ebbing away through lack of sustenance. 
We could also translate this phrase, therefore, in the following way, he refreshes me. That would also be a good understanding of the line. The Lord is my shepherd. What does this mean? Uh, it means, I shall not be in want. That's, that's the bottom line. I shall lack nothing that I need for the journey through life. Moses reminds the Israelites about their journey in the wilderness along these lines. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, he says, and you have not lacked anything. Just a kind of narrative version of, of this psalm. So the good shepherd keeps the sheep alive. He refreshes them. More than that, he guides them. He guides us. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The point here, I think, is that this is not a, an open-ended ramble through the Palestinian countryside, this journey. Uh, the sheep are not left to the devices and desires of their own hearts, to put it in the old liturgical way. The sheep did not plan the itinerary, which is just as well given the general foolishness of sheep and their famous capacity for getting lost and into danger. You may have noticed that sheep are not the brightest of God's creatures. They are not well endowed with common sense. They do not possess an especially good sense of direction, sheep. Uh, I came across a story a couple of years ago from a leading English-language newspaper uh, in Qatar, in the Persian Gulf. Um, this was a, a newspaper headline from 2009 on what was obviously a slow news day in Qatar. The, the headline was this, 400 sheep fall off cliff in Turkey. And uh, the story went on to describe how hundreds of sheep had followed their leader sheep off a cliff in eastern Turkey plunging to their deaths while their shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep died. Another 1,100 who followed them survived because the 400 at the bottom of the cliff broke their fall. So, so they kind of bounced, I guess. Um, sheep follow sheep. That's what they do, right? Sheep follow sheep. They don't necessarily plan where they're going. They don't think much about their direction. In Psalm 23, the itinerary for the journey does not lie in the sheep's own hands or feet, I guess. The itinerary lies in the hands of the good shepherd. And this shepherd is not like those Turkish shepherds. In the news article concerned, these Turkish shepherds, what were they doing while their sheep were running over the edge of the cliff? They were eating their own breakfasts leaving the sheep free to roam for a while near the edge of a cliff. Well, that's not good shepherding, I think. This good shepherd is attentive. He makes sure the sheep stay on the right kind of paths. That's really what that phrase, by the way, paths of righteousness uh, means. Um, the word righteousness has, for us modern Protestant folks, a, a rather obvious religious connotation, if I can put it that way, righteousness, imputed righteousness, and so on. Uh, sheep themselves, though, if we're sticking to the metaphor, sheep are neither righteous nor unrighteous, as far as I know. Uh, uh, goats, different matter, but sheep, <laughs> sheep are simply sheep. And, and the point of verse 3, I think, is that there are good places for sheep and there are bad places for sheep. And the good shepherd makes sure that his sheep do not stray off the right paths. That's the main idea. So this shepherd, for example, doesn't take the sheep along any of the main traffic arteries of Paris and certainly does not attempt illegal U-turns with them on any of those roads. Um, which, of course, is interesting because a shepherd's chance of success in pulling off a U-turn would have been better than New York girl, if you think about it. <laughs> because they spend a lot of the time making a U-turn. 
You see, I, I've built up credit by this point. So it... <laughs> the good shepherd keeps the sheep on the right paths. Um, that's, a, that's important to know. Uh, it's important to know that keeping the sheep safe is part of the good shepherd's agenda. Because there's more than one reason for making sure that sheep eat and drink well. My eldest son, Andrew, went on a missions trip a number of years ago um, to Kenya. He was living in the village of Kakayuni for a while. And while he was there, one of the villagers presented the mission team with a chicken. In a monumental display of poor taste, the mission team named this chicken Colonel Sanders. Now, why was that? Because that chicken's ultimate fate was not to be guided anywhere. <laughs> that chicken's ultimate fate was to be eaten. So it was fed, it was provided with water, but the end of the story was not a happy one for the chicken. Likewise, in ancient times, there was a very close connection between sheep and eating. There was more than one reason for looking after sheep, and one of them involved lamb chops. Well, the psalmist is convinced, contrary to that, that God does not have a hidden agenda in his providential care for us. The good shepherd provides for the sheep, not so that he can slaughter them later. The good shepherd provides for the sheep so that he can lead them onwards to even better things to come. Now, that will mean traveling through dark and dangerous places. And we've talked about that theme already this week. Psalm 23 is not naive when it comes to human experience. If it were naive, it would be impossible to take it seriously as truthful. But Psalm 23 is not naive. It's convinced of the goodness of the shepherd, but it also knows very well that there will be darkness and danger on this journey. Psalm 23 knows about evil and chaos. It knows about the sheep traveling through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, the picture here is really one of the darkest valley or ravine that you can imagine, a place where many threats may lurk, including flash floods. But it's not just a picture of death, although it includes death. The phrase, the valley of the shadow of death, is just a particularly graphic way in Hebrew of expressing a superlative. Um, it's the same with uh, phrases like holy of holies. That simply means the most holy place. King of kings, the greatest king. Song of songs, the best song. It's a Hebraism. It's an idiom. And so the valley of the shadow of death is really better translated in a more generalized way so as not to communicate simply the idea of death. Eugene Peterson in the message actually translates it as Death Valley, which I think at least to an American audience communicates quite well what, what's going on uh, here. Um, so it's really any dangerous place for sheep on the journey. A place of trouble, darkness, pain, suffering, the place where, in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, you might well feel in your heart the sentence of death, but not necessarily death itself. So it's a terrible place, this dark ravine. But the Good Shepherd, we are told, does not simply look after the sheep in pleasant places. He looks after the sheep also in these unpleasant places. And notice in this psalm, that the unpleasant places form part of where the right path goes. This is not an accident, right? It's not a, it's an unexpected thing that the path will lead us through places like this. These uh, dark valleys are necessary to get through if we're going to get to the destination. The Lament Psalms generally tell you that same message. It's unavoidable. There's no way of getting there without sometimes encountering dark places. The whole book of Psalms says that. The whole book of Job. The whole scripture says that. 
Um, it's just the way it is, and anyone who tells us otherwise is simply not telling us the truth. Anyone who suggests that the Christian life is a pain-free life, healthy, wealthy, no darkness in it, well, anyone who says that, I think, is a false prophet peddling a pernicious gospel, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, the whole scripture tells us that the journey we are on to the city of God with God must take us through dark places. But the important thing to notice is that the good shepherd walks with us through these places. You are with me, says the psalm. The good shepherd does not send us ahead down through the dark valley and then skip around to the other end by a different way. I'm just off to the pub for a drink. See you later. Good luck with the bears and the lions. That would not be good shepherding. The good shepherd does not leave us in dark places. He walks with us in dark places. Paul in 2 Corinthians again, God comforts us in all our troubles. The significance of that language, in fact. He does not necessarily take our troubles away, but he is to be found right in the midst of them. Because the good shepherd, this psalm says, is committed to his guiding task. He has bound himself to the flock by name. His reputation, his good name as a shepherd, is bound up with his success in carrying out this task. He guides me in the right paths for his name's sake. It's a matter of honor to God that he will get us safely to the end of the journey. This is this covenantal commitment that we've been talking about in other sessions. Well, what a companion that is when you add all of that up. What steadfast, committed love that that displays. Therefore, says the psalmist, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Notice, evil exists. He doesn't say, there is no evil in the world, therefore I shall be happy. He says, I shall fear no evil. It's real. It's unavoidable. But we need not fear it, because the shepherd is with us, and the shepherd is well armed. He has a rod. That's a very weak translation, I think, particularly nowadays. I mean, what do you think when you think of the word rod? I think of fishing rod. Other people might think of a stair rod. And they tend to be rather lightweight images, rather insubstantial images. But the thing we're talking about here looks more like this. It's a mighty big stick with a mighty big bit on the end. It's a cudgel in old-fashioned language. It's the sort of thing that shepherds use to fight off the bears and the wolves and the lions. It's an offensive weapon. The Irish would call it a shillelagh. The good shepherd has formidable weaponry. That's good news. He also has a staff along with this rod. The staff is indeed a longer a uh, thinner kind of stick. And it's used for keeping the sheep in line. Right? So he has what he needs to do the job. God is not just willing to do the job. God is able to do the job, says this psalm. He's perfectly able to defend. And being willing and able, it's not surprising, the psalmist says, that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so this psalm teaches us that God is the one who provides us with all that we need for our journey through life and is with us all the way. What is the end of the journey then? What about the destination? Is it worth the trouble? Verses 5 and 6 tell us about that. The imagery changes now from God as the good shepherd to God as the generous host. The pilgrim has moved on in the journey. He's arrived now at the end, and he encounters here a wonderful risk-taking host. Someone who welcomes the pilgrim in, even though he's not highly regarded by other people, 
In fact, he's hated, we are told, by many of those who see what's happening. But this host welcomes the pilgrim in, in any case. And uh, he does so in the presence of his enemies. The welcome is very warm. It's symbolized by the anointing with oil. Olive oil, very highly valued commodity in ancient Israel, often appears as a symbol of great wealth or blessing or luxury. That's why it was used to anoint kings and priests. We're talking about something symbolically of tremendous weight here. You anoint my head with oil. That's a very warm welcome at the end of the journey. Another sign of the welcome is the wonderful banquet organized. God prepares a table for this pilgrim. It's an abundant feast, we're told, for his cup brims to overflowing with wine. Another luxury item associated with flourishing and well-being and abundance. And in this banquet, there's lots of wine to be found. The pilgrim may be despised in the world outside, but inside the house of God, he is honored and welcomed, and he enjoys extravagant hospitality. I'm reminded of uh, Laura's phrase in one of the evening sessions about, uh, are, are we enough, I think you said. And this psalm says, yeah, of course you're enough. Because it's not really, at the end of the day, about your enoughness. It's about God's welcome and, and God says, yeah, come in. This is great. This is not grudging hospitality, notice once again. It's not mean-spirited. It's extravagant. It's not like those jokes you sometimes hear about getting to heaven. You know, all the ones that, they always involve St. Peter, don't they? The ones that I know anyway. And in all of these, you shop at the pearly gates, and they're always closed. Have you noticed that, those gates? You need to get past St. Peter somehow and through those closed gates to get in. So it's a closed gate and there's a gatekeeper and then there's a test of some kind. And if you pass the test, then maybe you'll be allowed in. But that's not how this psalm sees this whole business. This psalm sees it much more like this, that you come to the gate and the gate is open. Because Jesus is the gate in John chapter 10. The gate is open. There's not a bureaucrat in sight. <laughs> there's no clipboard. There's no tick list. There's not even an apostle in sight. They're all long gone. They've all moved further up and further in. And the road you find yourself on leads through this open gate to a restaurant. And the door to this restaurant is also open, and you are greeted warmly there. Good evening. Do allow me to take your coat. What would you like as your starter? And while you're waiting, by the way, here's a humongously large goblet of wine. That's the end of the journey in Psalm 23. It's not an exam. It's a banquet. Perhaps some of us, I'm sure we do, times in my own life I have, we fear that what we're actually heading for is a Colonel Sanders chicken roast <laughs> with ourselves as the main course. <laughs> but what we find instead is a banquet. That's what life with God is like. It's about generous provision and guidance and safety in dark places. And in the end, it's about an extravagant feast. It's a recurrent extravagant feast. It's endless. That's what verse 6 says, uh, we can translate verse 6 in a couple of ways, either that the pilgrim will return again and again throughout life to be in the presence of God, or that he'll remain in the presence of God from that point onwards. Uh, the first translation probably fits better the original context of the psalm where pilgrims are going up and coming back and going back again. The second one probably fits better what we now find the psalm doing in the book of Psalms. The point is, this is not a temporary joy before a crushing disappointment. Some of us are wired to expect that that's what life will be like. Yes, there may be occasional happy moments, but basically they're always the prelude to a disaster. 
I mean, I come from a nation uh, who are corporately wired in that way. Uh, the Scots are famous for this. There's an old joke that actually captures this of a tourist who says to a, a Scottish fisherman one day, a bright and breezy American tourist, and he gets up out of bed and comes out and he sees the fisherman mending his nets and he says, good morning, good morning, isn't it a wonderful day? And the fisherman looks up at the sky and he says, aye, he says, we'll pay for this. <laughs> and the trouble is, it's all too true. I mean, stereotypes work because they're true to a certain degree. But the joy in Psalm 23 is not a temporary joy before a crushing disappointment. It is the surprise of a joy that has no ending. Surely goodness and love, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, all the way through this life, even as it is often marked by pain and on into everlasting life. God will not turn his back on his friends. He will always show them uh, goodness. He will always show them steadfast love. These are the attributes of God. Indeed, we are told in this psalm that he will pursue us. The NIV has surely goodness and love will follow. I don't think follow is strong enough. Really, that Hebrew verb uh, would be better rendered. Surely goodness and love will pursue me. This Hebrew verb is used elsewhere in Scripture of animals pursuing their prey. Surely goodness, goodness and steadfast love will hunt me down. Surely goodness and steadfast love will breathe down my neck. Surely goodness and love will forever remain poised just around my jugular vein. That, those will be better, I think. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Tremendous confidence that David has in the goodness of God. Confidence that God wants the best from him, uh, for him rather, as he provides for him. Uh, confident that God is ever present with us as a guide. That even in the darkness and the pain, God is walking with us. That the eventual outcome is a warm welcome and a fantastic feast. Uh, many of us temperamentally, just because of our backgrounds, our experiences, a whole bunch of things, don't find ourselves quite often so confident of God's provision and guidance, especially in the darkness. We're not quite so sure on our journey that goodness and love are pursuing us quite so closely as this. Our tendency is to imagine that if they follow us at all, they only do so reluctantly and at some distance behind. We're inclined to look back rather nervously to check that they haven't got lost somewhere or have dodged behind a rock for a quick cigarette. But the psalmist encourages us, God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. You know this brief liturgy for busy people, right? It's a, it's a good liturgy. It's a good place to start. God is good all the time. God is the good shepherd. Go ahead. Go ahead. I won't say that again. <laughs> it's going to be endlessly recurring if I... Do. Um. And this is why he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, who wouldn't, basically? If that's what it is, who would not wish to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? It's a wonderful psalm. God loves us all the way to the end. And we've been considering this week, from the Old Testament primarily, a number of ways in which this love characterizes our lives. But of course, it's in the New Testament that one then sees the fullness of that love on display in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the person who picks up all the threads of God's love in the Old Testament and weaves them into a wonderful personal tapestry of what it all looks like. God loves us in the beginning, I said on Tuesday. John's Gospel connects us to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
and we have seen his glory, says John. This is who Jesus is, the God who loved us in the beginning. God loves everyone, Jews and Gentiles. I said on Wednesday, describing Abraham and Jacob and the covenant and in the New Testament, in John chapter 3, as we saw, God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son, that whoever believes, whoever believes, uh, shall not perish but have eternal life. Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. There is no difference, says Paul, between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. That's, the new, that's where the New Testament goes with those great Old Testament themes. We thought about the prophets and the wisdom literature, and here is Jesus, the prophet, as well as the king, addressing God's word to us, embodying God's wisdom, teaching us God's wisdom so that we can live our ordinary lives well. That's where it eventually gets to. And this morning, Psalm 23, and I probably don't need to tell you, but I'm going to anyway how these themes of the shepherd and the host play out in the New Testament. Jesus, who sees the crowds and has compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, who tells his disciples to go and preach to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus, who tells a story about the lost sheep to explain his mission and who tells us in John 10, I am the good shepherd. Jesus, as generous host, associating with sinners and eating and drinking with them in the midst of their enemies. Jesus, who speaks of a great banquet at the end of time, to which everyone is welcome. Many will come from east and west. Jesus, who tells the parable of the prodigal son. And, of course, a banquet in celebration of the lost son is at the center of that story. And amazingly, by the way, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke's gospel closely follows the parable of the lost sheep. Luke saw the connection, I think. I think he was reading Psalm 23 when he put Luke chapter 15 together, in fact. And both images appear again famously in Revelation chapter 7, where we are faced with a wonderful paradox the Lamb of God, who is also the shepherd, enduring, ensuring that his people never again hunger or thirst. A great multitude at the end of time stand before the throne of God. They serve God day and night, and he who sits in the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's where it ends. God so loves the world. But how long does this love last? Well, it lasts all the way to the end of our journey. It lasts beyond that to the far horizon of being itself. It lasts as long as you can conceive of it, and then it lasts much, much longer than that. It is long, this love, it is broad, it is deep, it embraces everything within it, and our Lord Jesus Christ displays it in all of his, all of its fullness. And this brings us, in the end, I think, to Romans chapter 8. And I just want to read a bit of it, because it sums it all up. You know this well. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the great question. And I've been saying the Old Testament tells you God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Dark valley stuff. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be convinced of these truths and preach them. Amen.